This is John Holtzman, and welcome to The Culture, our usual Tuesday section where we look at cultural goings-on for our little local newspaper to the world. And today's one I've been really waiting for. This is Hitchcock Through the Decades, the series we're doing, which started with the master in the 1930s, and we've been through the 1940s, and today we get to his high point, the 1950s. It's like Babe Ruth at the height of his game for the Yankees in the 1920s, this is as good as it gets for Hitchcock, and we have a festival of riches to go through, and it's hard to pick three, but I can say without a shadow of a doubt, the three movies I've picked, Rear Windows in 1954, Vertigo in 1958, and North by Northwest in 1959 are all great, great movies, and the first two certainly could easily be on anybody's top 20 list of the movies ever made, and in fact, they're mine. And How Can You Not Love North by Northwest, which is I'll go into some detail about, was the first James Bond movie, really. But first to Rear Window, and again, this is Hitch at the height of his game in the 1950s with three classic movies, and among the movies I left out this time, which also merit a mention, To Catch a Thief, the utterly charming mystery romance, more romance and less mystery, beautifully showcasing uh, Monaco, where, of course, Grace Kelly became Princess Grace, starring Cary Grant, Grace Kelly, long on the romance, short on the mystery, but an utterly well-written, well-acted, and charming movie. Uh, I used to have three movies to make me happy when I was just starting out in college. Uh, one was To Kill a Mockingbird to remind me that decent people existed. Uh, the other was To Catch a Thief to remind me that charm existed. And the last was Roman Holiday to remind me that Audrey Hepburn existed. Um, and certainly it deserves to be there. But these three that I picked were Window, Vertigo, and North by Northwest simply cannot be touched. So let's get down to it. Nor Rear Window came out in 1954, and it was a critical and audience hit, immediately starring the great Jim Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, playing a mix of the everyman, but the everyman with a twist. In essence, he is the photographer Robert Kappa, and his relationship with Grace Kelly is similar to Kappa's relationship with Ingrid Bergman, meaning a wartime photographer from one world who's very good at what he does, meeting the it girl of the time, movie actress in real life Ingrid Bergman, and in this film, Hitchcock's perfect ice-cold blonde. He later said the epitome of all his blondes, and Hitchcock famously favored them, is Grace Kelly. She's charming. She's witty. She's unimaginably beautiful. She's unattainable and yet madly in love with a James Stewart who hates her perfection. One of my favorite moments is when she brings dinner from 21 to his house. He's lying in bed, tussling about with a broken leg, bored without his mind. And a woman like Grace Kelly comes to the door with food from 21. And James Stewart has the nous to say, Lisa, it's perfect. Everything you do is perfect. That's the problem. Only Jimmy Stewart could get away with that. My son and I have laughed about this many times, that, that this is a very odd way to deal with Grace Kelly's perfection. But she really is the perfect Hitchcock woman, unattainable, intelligent, witty, just out of reach, but so there and getting that right. Also in a great uh, supporting role was Thelma Ritter, whose face you will recognize, if not her name. She always played domestics in the 1950s, often smart-alecky smart wise ones, and in this case, one who puts Jimmy Stewart in his place when he talks about the fact that he can't go off with Lisa, meaning Grace Kelly, and Thelma Ritter says he needs to have his head examined, quite rightly so. And as always in Hitchcock, along with the thrills, there's this humor that really suffuses Rear Window. Um, 
the news photographer, again, Robert Kappa in real life, with a broken leg, starts spending his time, because he's bored out of his mind, propped up against his window, looking out and seeing what's going on with his neighbors. And here's one of the great things about Rear Window. Hitchcock does away almost entirely with a linear narrative. Nothing much happens, and it's a brave and bold decision. It's merely episodic and almost in real time. We become Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. That's the trick of Rear Window. We stop watching him and become him because like him, we just look out the window episodically at five or six scenes. There's a newlywed couple, Miss Lonely Hearts and being treated horribly by men. And then fatefully amongst the other people that James Stewart sees, there's a, there's a composer who can't get his work done. There's a beautiful pinup girl and fending off boyfriends. And then fatefully, Jimmy Stewart sees what he thinks is a murder. And he decides, along with Grace Kelly, to solve the crime, even though he's laid up with his broken leg, with the help of both Thelma Ritter and Grace Kelly. And he tries to catch the killer, played by, with real menace by Raymond Burr, without being killed himself. And the fascinating thing is, as you watch the scenes, Jimmy Stewart does what we would do. He begins to narrate little stories to make sense of what's going on of what he sees. And so for each vignette, for each window, he makes up a little story to make sense of what's going on. And he does this five or six times in real time with almost nothing happening. And Hitchcock trusts his audience to be voyeuristic enough, to enjoy this enough, to get into it enough. And so very stealthily and very slowly, rear window builds up pace. And you begin to agree with Jimmy Stewart Something is buried in that garden. The wife of Raymond Burr is buried in that garden as the dog begins to chip away at it. And to his comeuppance, because as often in Hitchcock, the man is broken and needs a comeuppance, usually through fear to see what he's been missing. Um, Grace Kelly is sent over to Raymond Burr's apartment to gather evidence. James Stewart can't move and he's forced to watch along with the rest of us in horror as Raymond Burr comes home just a little bit too early. And suddenly all the qualities of Grace Kelly, of Lisa, are apparent to James Stewart and he's going to lose the very thing that he took for granted and that wakes him out of his emotional and intellectual torpor. Again, a, mag a magical movie. Hitchcock's bravery in trusting us to not just watch Jimmy Stewart, but to become Jimmy Stewart, showing the pitfalls of voyeurism, it's like watching a movie, which is what Hitchcock has devoted his obsession to, his voyeurism. And although he points it out as negative that you end up not acting but merely observing life, he also shows its allure. He shows the seductiveness of why James Stewart does this. And we become unwitting accomplices accomplices in what James Stewart is doing. We get interested. I wonder what Miss Lonely Hearts is up to. I wonder what the Blonde Bombshell's doing. I wonder how the composer's doing. We become part of the voyeuristic act. We become complicit in what James Stewart is doing, and we're seductively drawn in without knowing it until we become part of the problem, and or merely watching movies. But the problem is the passivity of it, and Hitchcock subverts the very movie-making at which he's so great. The plot is spare, the timing is slow, but my goodness, the payoff is entirely worth it. Jimmy Stewart has never been better as the everyman plus. He's Robert Kappa as a real guy plus, so he's both accomplished and an everyman, and he almost effortlessly manages this. Grace Kelly is at the top of her game, showing sexuality and warmth for the first time, as well as being the ice-cold blonde that Hitchcock aspired to but could never quite get to. 
And you almost can't do better for the movie. Having rewatched this, the warmth and affection I feel for the movie and the bravery stylistically of it. It's a very modern film that trusts its audience to be adults. And that leads me to Vertigo in 1958, even more of a movie that trusts the audience to be adults. This one stars James Stewart again, along with Kim Novak in 1958 and Barbara Bel Geddes as Midge, his ex-fiancee and best friend. And Vertigo, if Rear Window forces the audience to be grown-ups, Vertigo forces the audience to be supremely grown-up because, if anything, it's an even slower burn than Rear Window, which actually steadily increases in pace once you begin to believe with Jimmy Stewart that there's been a murder. In this one, there is no such moment. The first 30 minutes of the movie I remember watching as a kid and thinking, what's going on? Because what we meet, it's about obsession, manipulation, and fear, uh, Detective Scotty, James Stewart, is forced to retire after his fear of heights causes the death of a fellow officer. He's hired by his schoolmate, Gavin Esler, to shadow his wife, Madeline, who's elegant, again, another unapproachable blonde in Novak, dreamy and mysterious, and he fears she's troubled and may try to harm herself, and so he sends Scotty around as now a private detective to watch her. And so we merely follow her around with almost no dialogue, to a series of places that Madeline visits. The art gallery, a cemetery, a church. Almost wordlessly, we again become Jimmy Stewart. We don't just watch him. We become the detective voyeuristically following Madeline around. But then at the critical moment, his fear of heights leads to Madeline being killed. And so you think that would be the end of the story, kind of a half-finished Hitchcock. But actually, with Vertigo, we're just beginning. Because what happens, and the bold move here is that Judy, an entire look-alike for Madeline, and indeed played also by Kim Novak, bumps into James Stewart by chance, and she looks exactly like Kim Novak, and his obsession leads her. She's just from Kansas, is a shop clerk, is an elegant, but she looks and has an essence of Madeline, and James Stewart, in his voyeuristic male-dominated obsession, is determined to remake her. He remakes her clothes. He remakes her hair. She moves into a hotel so she can take walks with him in the afternoon. He possesses the thing that he's lost because the key part of the plot I haven't let you in on yet is that Madeline, and James Stewart watching Madeline, he's fallen in love with her. He got to know her, saw that she was troubled, tried to save her, failed to save her, and in failing to save her, um, is obsessed with her forever. Now with Judy, he sees the ch another chance. And so the odd thing is that in the first part of the movie, and without spoiling it too much, Hitchcock gives away, in essence, the ending, that Madeline isn't a real person, that Esler set James Stewart up because he knew of his fear of heights and set up this fake wife for him to follow around so he could get rid of his real wife. That's the MacGuffin. None of that really matters. The point is that in manipulating and tormenting James Stewart, now he becomes the tormentor and the manipulator because ironically, Madeline, this time Judy playing Madeline, has fallen in love with James Stewart, has seen him for who he really is. And so despite her best judgment or the best judgment of any sane person, he allows her to dress him, to manipulate him, to manipulate her. He becomes obsessed by her and she allows this to happen because she just wants to be close to him. And so there's an entire, entire role reversal. And if you want to see some of the most horrifying psychological scenes ever committed to film, watch James Stewart having been victimized for the first half of the 
film become victimizer in the second portion of the film. Really an extraordinary transformation. And it's one of the most gothic Edgar Allan Poe-like scenes I've ever seen. She stays with him because she loves him, even though in his mad obsession, she knows he's going to destroy their relationship and their love. Extraordinary psychological performances, an incredibly slow burn, but the dreamy quality of Kim Novak is, was never more perfectly committed to film. And here James Stewart is just the everyman and you feel his obsession. And indeed, when the green light shines into the hotel room and you watch him grab Madeline as Judy and say, let me remake you, it can't matter to you what I do. As that happens, you can't look away, but it's the greatest psychological car crash ever committed to film. A very personal film for Hitchcock because it's all about voyeurism of beautiful, unattainable blondes, which was his life's curse. So you have these psychological shocks and then this beautiful, lush filmmaking, the VistaVision color of San Francisco, which has never looked better. And that's one of my favorite cities in the world. And it's breathtaking to look at. And it sticks with you. So there's the psychological trauma, the stylishness of everything. At the time, the film didn't work. It was derided. Stewart was thought to be too old to play Scotty. Barbara Bel Geddes, who had been a leading lady, was thought too beautiful to play a second banana, though I think as mid, she does an excellent job being the only one to speak truth to Scotty, if gently, about his obsessions, which he largely ignores. Um, I think she's good, and Novak was seen as not having fulfilled the province of the script. But for, and Hitchcock even said Stewart was too old. Absolutely wrong. Canonically now, I would say Vertigo is in most people's top ten, and indeed briefly in sight and sound. It supplanted Citizen Kane as the greatest film of all time. I don't know if it's that, but it's certainly one of the top ten and perhaps one of the top five. An incredible, breathtaking psychological ride of a slow burn that demands the audience to sit through it. But in the end, the last quarter is horrifying. The thriller aspect of it has never shown through better. And it stands as one of Hitch's greatest movies. And then the last one we're going to look at today is another of my favorites that I loved re-seeing, North by Northwest in 1955. Cary Grant, Yves-Marie Saint, and the elegant James Mason duel it out. And this is really the first Bond movie. That's the way to look at this. And remember, Bond comes in in 1962, so we're just a few years away. And in fact, Cary Grant was offered the part of James Bond, but sensibly said, I'd have loved to do this at another point in my life, but I'm too old, opening the door to Sean Connery who couldn't be bettered. But, you know, Grant is indeed the first Bond in many ways in his performances, and never more so than here. He plays Roger O. Thornhill, a New York ad executive, with a somewhat unhealthy relationship with his mother, who bosses him around. Um, he's been married a number of times, uh, is utterly frivolous and doesn't take life seriously until one day he's mistaken for a U.S. government agent and is pursued by the ruthless Philip Van Damme, a foreign spy, played perfectly by James Mason. And if Grant is the first Bond, Mason is the perfect first Bond villain, perhaps the two most elegant men in the world trying to outsubtle each other and trying to see who comes up with the best witticisms. As both of them romance, Eve Marie Saint playing the mysterious Matahari-like Eve Kendall as they go on a cross-country chase north by northwest that ends up with the iconic scene of Grant running amid the statues and faces at Mount Rushmore of the presidents. But the most iconic scene, and one of the most iconic ever put to film, is in the Midwest, in the flat scene. And in a way, it sums up all of Hitchcock in a moment. 
Grant has been sent out on a wild goose chase to meet someone who is supposed to help him. Nothing is happening, as always, that Hitchcock makes terror out of the banal. I mean, if anything, that is his utter specialty. And you see a crop-dusting plane in the distance, dusting away, a bus come and go, someone stop and talk to him, and all these are red herrings, because what's happening, as the audience begins to realize bit by bit to their horror, is the crop-dusting plane begins to swoop down, directly aiming to kill Cary Grant and comes full bore into the screen. And it's one of the most iconic scenes in all of film history, summing up Hitch's uh, taking the theater of the absurd, the theater of the banal, and making it terrifying at the same time. It's alone worth the price of admission, summing up Hitchcock, the everyman being chased down by terrible impersonal forces. But this one, more than even most, is just plain fun and is plain funny. The witticisms of the three major characters, and if you include Cary Grant's mother, the witticisms of the four major characters are utterly charming. It's beautifully written, and seeing Mason and Grant decide who is the suavest man in the world in their scenes is breathtaking good fun. And this one will stay with you, because unlike the other two, unlike Rear Window and Vertigo, this is remarkably fast-paced. This is a Bond film from beginning to end. You hold on. It's a long film, but you hold on to your seat, and it takes you all the way with it. And boy, would Grant, in his prime, have made a magnificent Bond. But Hitchcock, at the end of the 1950s, proves he is absolutely on top of his game, having made a thriller that is perhaps the thriller of all thrillers, tremendous music. Again, the costumes, the lush filming. Look at Eve Marie Saint's dress, the red velvet dress in the Chicago Hotel. I remember this from my childhood vividly. Look at the coloration. Look at the stylishness, the writing. This is a professional film made by a professional filmmaker with a professional script, professional actors for a grown-up audience. It is absolutely the champagne of thriller movies. And so I commend to you all three of these as great films. Rear Window, 1954, Vertigo of 1958, and North by Northwest of 1959. You will not regret seeing all of these. And throw in, if you're feeling, feeling romantic, the charming To Catch a Thief, when Grace Kelly went from being Grace Kelly to Princess Grace. You'll enjoy that as well. And this is the master at the height of his game in the 1950s. Hope you enjoyed this culture. I absolutely love doing it with you. And we will move on to Hitchcock through the decades for the last of our Hitchcock series in the 1960s. And then I think we'll either go to Europe to see the Cahiers de Cinema guys, to see perhaps Ingmar Bergman or the Italians, Fellini, Viscani, Antonioni. I'm not sure where we're going to go next, but we will head overseas. Maybe Sergio Leone we might do because I love him and Benjamin and I went through those as well. If, for those of you who enjoy this, please do subscribe. We've doubled our membership in the last month and we are thrilled to have so many of you with us in our community as this simply booms beyond my wildest expectations. Thank you for that. We will keep them coming. I love what we do. And for those of you who have subscribed, if you like our Ukraine vlog briefings, if you like the culture when we look at Hitchcock, if you like Around the World in 20 Minutes where we update you on the international scene, if you like the society where J.L. Ryder, my great colleague and good friend, looks at what's going on in our society, and if you look at Publius, another great friend of mine, and the politics, we are a full-service little local newspaper to the world. Please do give. We're only asking $70 a year, which allows us to spend this vast amount of time working with this community as we devote more and more of the firm's resources to doing things I love, like Hitchcock through the decades. Hope you enjoy this, and on to the next.